0: We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. Those are verses 1 and 9 of Psalm 75, which along with Psalm 76 are the Psalms appointed for today, Saturday, June eleventh, 2021 you're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding and I'm your host John Green. I thank you for being along with us today. We are looking still in the same books that we were in yesterday and the day before, which is Ecclesiasticus 46, 1 to 10, 2 Corinthians 13, the first 14 verses and the first eight verses of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. So we're continuing this look at Jewish history and we had gone through Aaron and Moses, and now here we are, no, Abraham, sorry, Abraham and Aaron, and now here we are, we've skipped over Moses and gone to Joshua, um, who is Moses's protege, and the one who takes over and completes the conquest of the land, since Moses was disqualified from entering it because of his sin of striking the rock in the wilderness instead of speaking to the rock and and then being presumptuous in that. And so Joshua is the one who takes over from him and he leads the people into the promised land and leads the conquest of the land even though it was an incomplete conquest. Um, So Joshua is the next one that we'll hear uh, great things spoken of. And Joshua was indeed one who led the people in many, many ways and, and had been a leader all throughout his life uh, to be honest with you, because he was he was next to Moses. He was Moses' right-hand man, and as I said, his protege. Um, and, and Joshua was there for all the important things in Moses's life. He was a great defender of Moses as well. Um, the, the one other thing that Joshua was known for is when Moses sends out spies into the land, because the people want to know what it is they're going to be facing when they come into that land, the kind of opposition they'll be facing. When he sends spies into the land... Uh, remember Joshua and Caleb are the, one, the two who come back with a good report. You know, and everybody came back and said, wow, it's an incredible land. It's exactly the way God said it was. It flows with milk and honey and we brought some of the produce of the land back. It's amazing. However, the inhabitants of the land are frightening and scary people. And so they, they got the people in a place where they were afraid and they were afraid to take the next step. And so they didn't. And because of that, they got stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. Joshua and Caleb, however, said, come on, let's go. Um, I've always found it interesting, and, and particularly before I, I left um, where I was ministering as a, a staff member in paul's Island, I, it, it never occurred to me why it was that this guy who had been sort of the, the drum major of let's go in the land and, and conquer the land why it is, this is the beginning, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is the one who first says to him, be strong and courageous. Um, it's like, well, why are you encouraging the one guy, who, or one of the two guys, who was actually strong and courageous? And so he, he does that, and then the book of Joshua begins with the Lord speaking these words to him, don't be terrified, don't, you know. And and it's because, you know, I always wondered, well, why is it that the one guy who sh- who has shown his courage now, is the one who has lectured—not lectured, but at least encouraged—all the time for a while there to just to, to be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified. And and then I found out, and it's because once you move into that leadership role from the two role, then suddenly something different happens. You're now responsible for the outcome. You're the one who'll be blamed for that. And so. You, you can tend to become more cautious in leadership roles than you would be in that secondary role because you have less responsibility for it. And so it, it when you move into that leadership role, now the decisions that you make land on you. The What happens, the outcome lands on you. If, if, if you made the wrong decision to go charging in, then then it's going to be you who will take the blame. For that. And so jo- that's the reason I believe Joshua has to be encouraged, is because he's moving into a new role of leadership in his life. And so here, what you get is, is this um, ode to Joshua, son of Nun, mighty in war, and the successor of Moses in the prophetic office. He became, as his name implies, because his name is Yeshua, which is, well, Jesus. And it, what it means is, is the Lord saves. He became, as his name implies, a great savior of God's elect to take vengeance on the enemies that rose against them so that he might give Israel its inheritance. How glorious he was when he lifted his hands and brandished his sword among the cities, who before him ever stood so firm, for he waged the wars of the Lord. Was it not through him that the sun stood still and one day became as long as two? He called upon the Most High, the Mighty One, when enemies pressed him on every side, and the great Lord answered him with hailstones of mighty power. And it goes on and on. And then he says, in the days of Moses, he proved his loyalty. He and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, they opposed the congregation, restrained the people from sin, and still their wicked grumbling. And these two alone were spared out of 600,000 infantry to lead the people into their inheritance. Because the 600,000 infantry there are the 600,000 who came out of Egypt and their infantry in the sense that that if they had not sinned by failing to enter the land in accordance with the command of the Lord, then they would have been the infantry. They would have been the foot soldiers who were taking that land. But because of that sin, it was decreed that no one born in that generation would would enter the land. And so Joshua and Caleb are the ones who still come in as commanders at that point to give the people their inheritance, the land flowing with milk and honey. And it's a beautiful passage Um, to, to a man who, who probably we overlook in spite of the fact there's an entire book (laughs) of Joshua, we, we tend to overlook Joshua and, and his exploits and his leadership of the people. I've always contended he was one of the greatest leaders in the history of the people, um, he sent out spies, and they came back and said, we spent a couple of days with a prostitute, and here's the word. And you know, its I've always laughed at that idea, but that's where they were, and that's exactly what happened. And and so he sent spies, but the spies weren't there. Did He didn't send spies out to who would bring back a report of um, how difficult this was going to be. In fact, those spies came back with a report that says, we've been afraid of you since we first heard of you in the wilderness. So the people that they feared had been afraid of them and living in fear of them all that time. But then before they can enter the land and go in, Joshua says, okay, there's something else that's got to be taken care of first, fellas, and that is you've all got to be circumcised. And so just before entering the land and taking the land, he requires them to be circumcised because in, in the same way that Moses had to be circumcised before he could come back and lead the people and, and his children had to be circumcised, uh, I mean, so that the, he could come back and lead the people, they, they all had to identify with the Lord and they had to do it in that physical way that, that the Lord had commanded. And so it's a great measure of leadership for Joshua that he now demands that the people be um, circumcised prior to entering the land and prior to entering battle. you know, And so it's he, he was indeed one of the great leaders of Israel's history, and he was not only a military leader, but he was a leader of the people. Because at the end, what he does is the same thing Moses does at the end of his life. He stands before the people and he, he makes them choose between life and death, right and wrong, God and something else. And he says, that's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. And he's not um, encouraged by what he's seen as to their ability to continue to serve the Lord and pursue him hard. He he sees something that causes him to be really skeptical of the declaration they make that they too will serve the Lord. And he says, well, your words will stand as as a testimony against you when you fail to do that joshua was a man after god's own heart i mean there's there's nothing that you can look at in the life of joshua i don't believe and find fault with in any shape form or fashion um great man great man in the history of god's people um the in the gospel today what you get is jesus remember yesterday he came in and drove the money changers and the um, sellers of sacrificial animals out of the temple precincts. And, and then what we're told today is that one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up to him and said, tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? In other words, who who is allowing you to speak here? I don't remember us giving you the right to do that. And I don't remember you coming and seeking that authority from us. And we're the ones who control Uh, all these things and he answered them i'll also ask you a question now tell me was the baptism of john from heaven or from man in other words was god was john a man sent from god period end of sentence was john's message a godly message because it speaks a word against you and it calls you to repent so was that was that from heaven or from man and they discussed it with one another. And this is, you always know then, well, the answer should be simple, but it's apparently not. Whenever they discuss it among themselves, if we say, from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say, from man, all the people's going to stone us to death, for they're convinced John was a prophet. So they answered that they didn't know where it came from. Jesus said to them, neither then will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You know, that that's the, I, I can remember years ago when I left the Episcopal Church. Um, one of the reasons that I left was because I saw this theological drift um, that that couldn't affirm basic Christian doctrine. Could not affirm that Jesus was the was and is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. It couldn't affirm that Scripture was normative. That Scripture was of God. It doesn't contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. When you say it contains the Word of God, then what you're saying is all of it is not God-breathed. Only the parts that I believe are God-breathed. Because if it contains the Word of God, well, somebody's got to determine which part of it is the Word of God and which part of it is not the Word of God. And that was a problem. We had a a priest stand up and say that that he had it all over the conservatives because he uh, knew that that Scripture wasn't... um, perfectly clear and wasn't literal i think was the word he used he says he said for instance for a literalist they have to believe that when jesus says i'm the vine and you're the branches that jesus is a green leafy substance no 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 one ever said that every single word in the bible is to be interpreted literally prophetic texts all use metaphors and so it, it was an obnoxious statement Um, but what it said to me was is that he he didn't have any idea what was literal and what was not literal in a way that people who say that i interpret the bible literally do actually know that we know that there are metaphors there so but then i heard a bishop talk on easter at our church and he went on and on and on about resurrection and i I, he, he was using the term in a way that that convinced me very quickly that that he didn't believe the same thing I did about resurrection. So when I left the church, I I wrote a a letter to a bunch of people who I led several ministries. And so I, I, I explained my resignation to them and said, I'm pursuing a call to ministry. I'm going to seminary and blah, blah, blah. But I didn't say anything bad about the church. All I said is, I want you to make sure that your leaders believe things like the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Well, a year later, a friend of mine called me and, and said, John, I, I thought maybe you'd lost your mind when you <laughs> when you said that. He, she said, however, I, I was working in the cathedral bookstore, and I asked the bishop, I said, do you know John Green? He said, yes, I do. He's a fine layman. I'm sorry that he's no longer in the church. And she said, well, um, when he left, he wrote this letter. Did you see the letter, bishop? I did see the letter. Yep, I did. Um, and she said, so uh, I, he said this about the bodily resurrection. Do you believe in the bodily resurrection? And his response was, well... Uh, no, that's that's not okay. <laughs> that's not in line with the creeds. It's not in line with the, what the church has always believed. And, and this is what the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders are trying to do here, the chief priests. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm slandering the Pharisees unnecessarily here. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders who came up to him, asked him this thing, and then they, they fudge and hedge their bets. And, and it's important that we be clear about the things we should be clear about. Um. John, Jesus said, is, is Elijah. Elijah has already come, and they rejected him. And so here it's important that, that we make sure that our leaders believe right things. <laughs> it's important that we, that we get that clear and that they be clear about things and that they not uh, fumble around for a response when asked a simple, straightforward question. And, and so when Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians, he's saying exactly this thing. He's saying, I'm, I'm being very clear with you. You're tolerating sin, and you're tolerating sin because of the the message these other super apostles preach to you that has to do with denying that that bodily sins are of any importance at all. As long as you don't reject God, as long as you don't walk away from Him, then what you do with your body really doesn't matter. Um, He said, no, that's sin, and you're living in sin. And I want to be very clear with you about that, he says. This is the third time I'm coming. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I'm not, I'm not coming in there and, and just ransacking the place. Nope. I know what's going on. I have plenty of witnesses that tell me these things. And this Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses is, is a basic fundamental principle of Jewish law that you can't accept the testimony of one person in order to decide a case. Or dispute, He says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while I'm absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I'll not spare them. Since you speak proof that Christ is speaking through me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. We are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. In other words, I'm, I'm coming and bringing judgment with me at the church. And it starts right there at the church. He's not judging the rest of the world. He's judging the church because there's a standard we can hold them to. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you realize, not realize this about yourself, that Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And but then he says, we pray that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed, for we can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We're glad when we're weak and you're strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Paul's writing to a church that's ex- that has denied the authority of, of not just Paul, but literally of Jesus and of the Word. It's denied the authority of the Word of God, which is God. It, it, you can't separate the Word of God from God. No. It, it's literally what they believe uh, in, in Judaism is, is the Torah is the blueprint for the creation of the world. And so if you want the world to work the right way, then we cooperate with the blueprint. But it's we find that right from the beginning. What, so what happens when you transgress against the, quote, law that God's given you? Well, you die. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve. You will surely die. And they did. They ultimately died. And they died in many ways before that. And and so we get further and further away from the law. When we get further and further away from the word of the Lord, then we die. We die spiritually. We die otherwise. And, And it's important that we aim for restoration and pray for restoration. It's that reason that we confront sin and we're clear about what sin is. So that we might ensure that you don't die in your sins and because of your sins. It's important that we accept and uphold the authority of the word of God in all things.